1, starting verses 1 through 6, and then jumping to verses 11 through 14. If you would like to follow along, you can find this passage in the Bible, uh, in the pew in front of you, on page 1775. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Then going to verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Thanks, Becca. Hey everyone, happy Mother's Day to you mothers. There's a, um, a long-standing tradition in um, evangelical churches that believe in the scriptures that on Mother's Day we say, mothers, you, you're so fantastic. You're just so fantastic. You're amazing and fantastic. Then on Father's Day we go, dads, let's get it together now. Come on. Come on, pick up the slack, right? So this year we're going to reverse it, okay? No, I'm just kidding. That's— <laughs> It's not really going to happen. Um, but over the last couple of months, I've been studying the book of Malachi in the Old Testament again, and there's a bunch of stuff in that book. But one of them is—one part talks about the family, and it says that the reason God created the family and therefore motherhood was so that he would have godly offspring. There's two parts to that. One part is getting them in and out of your uterus. Okay, that's the offspring part, and that's important. You can't do the godly part without the offspring part, so thank you. This is great. But the point of the offspring is that they would belong to God. That they would be your offspring and his offspring. That they would be godly offspring. It turns out, it just doesn't matter a bit how good your kid is at baseball. It just doesn't matter. Or soccer, or anything like that. It really doesn't matter if they play the violin good, or speak in correct English. Okay? What, and that stuff is good. Enrichment is fantastic. But the fundamental thing that matters with children that are born into this world is that they would be godly, and that every decision of your parenting, every way you interact with them, is aimed at forming them in godliness. And of course, that means every action of yourself, that you would respond to Jesus yourself and be formed in godliness, because that's mostly what they learn from, is what you do. It's the old show-me-don't-tell-me parenting, right? So, um, the last three days before—the uh, last three days of, the, of the, the week, I was in the Northwoods with Adam Darbone. He was uh, an intern here for a year, a pastoral intern from 2010 to 2011. 
He went and got his MDiv after that, went back to his native San Francisco, was pastoring the campus of a church. That church grew enough to become its own church, and he's now sort of the second-in-command associate pastor at that church, and they're talking about planning another campus where he'll be the senior pastor. So that's in San Francisco, and they're baptizing new believers there, and um, God is doing work through that church, and he said over the three days we spent together not catching fish, um, that his year here was incredibly formative. He was so glad for the direction that he got, and he feels like this church made an enormous difference in him becoming a pastor and and persevering as far as he has so far. So I hope that inspires you. I hope it inspires you to support the new interns that'll come in. Um, Also in terms of hiring, um, the elders voted on two hiring gigs. So one is, is that we are going to move John, the lean Caucasian fellow here, over to children. So the, the leader of children's will still be a Caucasian fellow, just significantly taller. And then <laughs> in a few weeks, um, John will be a less tall Asian woman because Ashlyn Lee accepted the position of um, communications. Um, she actually has belonged to Jesus for like a year, just a year. She got baptized a couple months ago. Or she's belonged to Jesus since the foundation of the world, depending on whether you're counting phenomenologically or theologically. Okay? Um, <laughs> But she's going to be our new communications director. We're really excited about that. Um, she's high capacity, low maintenance. We're going to get some work done. So, um, so that's great. So God has really provided—he provided somebody from within our own church, which is always a blessing. Because um, it's—they have all their own baggage, but it's our baggage. So, um, all right. So let's get into Ephesians. If you have a Bible, I want you to look at it. If you don't, maybe you can open one in front of you and look at it. Um, and I, I want you to see something, because it's very easy for us— to have a Bible in our hands that was printed in America, and it's got these nice, this nice type font in it, and these like little super thin pages, and the, like the little footed things that you like with the little notes in the margins. And here's what I need you to understand. People died so that you could have that in your hands, okay? Paul was in prison when he wrote it or dictated it. It crossed at least two pretty dangerous seas to get to the Turkish peninsula, very recent, very soon after it got there, a number of the ten great persecutions against the church broke out. One of the Romans' favorite things to do was to torture Christians to give up their copies of the scriptures. You might be like, well, that's crazy. They never could get rid of all the Bibles. Yeah, except before the printing press, you had to hand copy every Bible. And so it took about a year to produce a Bible, and you could torture one out of a Christian in about 20 minutes. So the Romans did everything they could to destroy every copy of the Bible. In fact, if you look at the history of Christian manuscripts, there are very few Christian manuscripts that date before 325. Why is that? Because that's when Constantine and Galerian, before that, ended the persecution. It was about 315. And so before that, most of the copies of the Bible were tortured out of people and burned and destroyed so there wouldn't be any Christian scriptures, so that this epistle would not get to you. But there were people who moved them around and recopied them and escaped persecution and left their homes and families to take them and hide them and copy them so that you would have it in your hands today. So that this four pages that God inspired for the Apostle Paul to write 2,000 years ago in a prison cell would come to you. And over the next three or four months, you would benefit from it eternally. So as we start this, please don't just look at the little white pages in your book, okay? This is a blood-bought, blood-saved men and women just like you who had plans for their life, who hoped to live in peace, 
and to see their children grow up into honorable manhood and womanhood, burned it to ashes to save these pages for you. Do you understand? Some of them coated with honey and hung in the square of the town so that wasps and bees would come and eat them to death. They were stabbed with knives and corn was stuffed into their stomach and then they were thrown in the pig pens and tied down so that the pigs would eat their intestines while they were alive. Like I could go on, okay? And it was done so that the Christians would give up their faith and give up their scriptures so that they could snuff out the inspired word that was meant to come to you and save you and change your life and to lead you to be everything you could possibly be in Christ, okay? They loved you to death. All right. Well, with that light introduction, let's go into um, what this passage focuses on. Here's what we're going to look at today in these first verses. That we should bless God who has graciously predestined us to every spiritual blessing in Christ. That we should bless God, the God who has graciously predestined us to every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's four parts. That God is blessed or adored. That we should that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, that he has predestined us in Christ, and he's done it graciously in Christ, okay? So the first thing is that God is blessed or adored. So the first verse, verse 3 is, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, so this praise be to the God, that is this sa- the same word as that. It is, it's, and it's not an imperative verb, it's an adjective. Just blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, who is sitting in prison for God knows how long, that will likely end in his beheading or death, as far as he knows, and ultimately did in one of his imprisonments, starts off this letter that he writes to all the churches, and he says, listen, the first attitude on your heart and mind, if you're among God's holy ones and faithful, it says in verse 2, he says, let your attitude be this, blessed is God. Like, that that would be your attitude. That your attitude is that God has blessed us, given us everything that we have in Christ. And so my attitude toward him should be that he's blessed. I, I bless him. Now, sometimes people get sideways on this because they're like, wait, if God is really this, like, all-self-sufficient one, like, how, in what way are we blessing God? Like, what, in what way are we adding to him? Or sometimes there's an Old Testament language of lifting up the name of God, Right? Sometimes we'll sing worship songs that we lift up your name, and people are like, like, you know, is God's name insufficiently buttressed? Like, I mean, people, you know, it's, it's kind of like those things. You know how, like, almost every saying you can take it negatively if you want to bad enough? So if I say, you know, Mike, you look really nice today, right? What's the bad way to take that? Didn't I look nice the other days? Like, what are, you know? And there, I mean, <clears throat> there are some, there are some statements that are kind of begged to be taken negatively, like, you don't look fat at all in that. Like, that, there are some things you can't, you can't because you'll get drawn in. But there are some statements that are just kind of like, they're just statements. And they're meant to say the positive thing. And that's it. They don't have negative implications. So when we say that we bless God or we lift up the name of Jesus, we aren't literally taking the self-sufficient name of God or being of God and like making him bigger or something. God is ultimately self-sufficient. But what really matters is our response and reaction to the truth about it. So if God blesses us, that is, gives us graciously everything— out of his openness and willingness and generosity, the proper response is to enjoy that back, to be thankful back, to 
say good things to bless or adore God. It doesn't increase his godhood. It's like if you—hopefully you, maybe you got something for your mom. Like obviously Mother's Day isn't a Christian holiday, but it's a, it's a Christian-like holiday to honor somebody, right? So if you got something for a mother, you didn't like ontologically increase their motherhood when you gave them like flowers or chocolates or like a whiskey bar. Like you, n- none of that actually makes them more of a mother, right? But it makes— you a better mother appreciator. It makes you better. It, it's, it's, it, it's a transaction that matters. It doesn't affect her motherhood at all, other than maybe she enjoys it more. And so our attitude must be to bless God, to be thankful to Him, to love and enjoy Him, right? And one of the reasons that's really important for us is because human beings in our natural state um, we just are kind of negativity machines. Like, we're really good at being negative. We're, we're good at um, complaining. We're really good at seeing the dark side of things. We're really good at seeing how other people should have treated us better. We're really good at thinking negative thoughts, okay? And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Really bad ones, fairly normal ones. And Misery is the default for human beings. We're just really good at like going negative and being miserable. Happiness or joy or choosing to be thankful is always a direct, intentional, disciplined human choice, right? I was, I was in the Northwoods for three days this week, and it just so happened that I picked the perfect three days when it would rain and sleet and the wind would blow at 20 miles an hour while I'm trying to fish with somebody and with my son, who normally is kind of a trooper, but then you get enough witnessly, and then he kind of is a little complainer, and he gets a little punchy when he's complaining. And then um, we didn't hardly catch any fish. We caught 15 fish with two fishermen over three days. It's a good thing they were all muskies, right? So, just kidding. No, they weren't at all. It was terrible. And so, I, all three days, I was, I felt myself on the cusp of like, okay, from a worldly perspective, what was I thinking? I spent money, I spent time, and this is what I get, right? And so, misery. But it was also true that I was outdoors. I was with a friend. I was with my son. I was on the water. I was fishing. We caught 15 fish. That's not zero fish. I bumped into people at the boat landing that hadn't caught any fish, right? To which, with my air of superiority, I was like, well, better luck next time, you know what I mean? Like, there were moments of— you know, there, was, there were moments of like, you know, this is great. This is great. But you see, the situation didn't change. It was fundamentally a choice. It is fundamentally a choice, right? And what the apostle is telling us is your whole life is like that. Every moment of your life is like that. Your whole life is a choice. Either you will accept on a deep level by faith that God has been good to you and you should bless him. And therefore, you should live in a state of thankfulness and joy in all circumstances, or you won't. Does that make sense? Think about Paul for a second. So Paul is an extraordinarily educated, smart, wise, and effective evangelist. Jesus has chosen him to be his apostle to all the Gentiles. That's everybody who's not Jewish. He tells us that in the book of Acts. Then he knocks— Paul off his horse so that he'll come to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He takes up this mantle. He becomes this missionary. He knows that God has told him this is what his life is for. And in 
And in Ephesians 6, 10, I think it is, he says, yeah, 6, 19 to 20, he says, he says, I am an ambassador in chains. Now, what is the point of an ambassador? There's somebody who goes, right? And what is the point of putting someone in chains? That they go nowhere. Do you see what he's saying? He's writing this in that place. He knows what his life is for, what he wants to do, what he's gifted at, what he enjoys, what God wants him to do, is to go. He's an ambassador. Like, he chose that word specifically. I'm someone who goes and tells. And I am chained in this spot. And I am going nowhere. So, you see, sometimes the choice to bless God has to do with specific acute circumstances. Like, you get hurt by a friend. You lose your job. Somebody leaves you. You get betrayed. You know, something that's like acute and momentary. But for a lot of us, the thing that really destroys us over time is our life just isn't going the way we want it to. Over time. We just didn't imagine it would go this way. Right? Or providence has taken it in a direction we don't really like. Right? So for me, one of the things that I really enjoyed early in my ministry was being like a philosophical person. Right? So I would— I really liked reading super highly analytical philosophy books, and I liked taking like as much knowledge as I could find and try to put it together for people to understand. I took a lot of joy in being able to have sophisticated enough arguments to help people who are dealing with relatively sophisticated problems. But over the last seven to nine years of the ministry I've been doing, the church has grown. People just have more normal human needs. My family has grown up, and they need more stuff from me. And my wife has reasonably asked more from me at times. And my, my mother is living with us. And like just life has so happened that I've spent less and less and less and less time doing that, that piece that I think of as like what's special about me. What else is special about me, right? Not much. So like for me, I kind of feel sometimes like I'm gonna—my life is going in a way I wouldn't have set up like that. But here's the thing. God has plenty of smarty pants out there getting PhDs and writing stuff. He doesn't need another one. He doesn't need me doing that. He needs me doing this, right? He needs me raising my family, being a husband, loving my mother, trying to be here for you, explaining God's word. And then when people have relatively sophisticated problems, do my best. But now there are situations, and I hate to admit this, there are situations where I'm like, look, I'm just not as up on that right now as I would like to be. You need to go talk to this person. And it kills me to do that. But here's the thing. That is the providence of my life. I believe that this is what God has me doing. I believe I could have another calling. I think I'm gifted for that calling. Doesn't matter. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm supposed to love. This isn't how I imagined my life would going. Sometimes I feel like I'm chained. Sometimes I feel that way. But my job is to write in my life what Paul writes here. Listen, you guys. Bless God who has blessed you. Have an attitude of thankfulness and worship. And then he goes through this whole book, and he basically lays out through all six of these chapters all of the reasons and all of the ways and all of the rights that we have to be happy in God and to bless him no matter what we're going through, okay? Let's talk about the second thing. That God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. It says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, I want you to see two things here. The first is the word every. Okay, every. In Greek, that word means every. Okay? 
So if you hypothetically imagine that a human being in full redemption could receive up to a 10,000 spiritual blessings. Let's say in God's manifold creativity, there's 10,000 spiritual blessings that could be received. In Christ, if you are in Christ, you have received not one, not 200, not 3,000, not 7,000. You have received 10,000 spiritual blessings in Christ. You have received them all. If you are not yet a Christian, if you become one, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust him for your salvation, he will do the miracle of regeneration in you. He will give you his spirit, and with it, all things, including every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's for you. It's actually an inheritance that he's purchased for you. It already belongs to you if you will take hold of it. But only if you'll take hold of it. Right? Now, that's the first thing. Every spiritual blessing. Here's the second thing. I want you to notice, he says this. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms— with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Did you notice that? Guy's in prison. He says, listen, this is what we've received. All of the blessings, all, every blessing that we could possibly receive, every good thing that God has concocted to give us in the death and resurrection of his son, everything for our eternity, our defeating of death, everything is a, in the heavenly realms and is a spiritual blessing. And you can just translate that to the opposite. Not the earthly realms and not a physical blessing. Now, there's a fundamental theological truth there that should be obvious, right? The earthly and physical blessings we all receive are all different. Just look around. We're not all the same. We've all had different lives. Different things have happened to us, right? It's Mother's Day, right? Some of us have become others. About half of us can't become others. Others of us wanted to become others and haven't or haven't yet. It's all different for all of us. And we all haven't had the same kids, and they don't all behave the same way, and they're, they're not all receptive, and we don't even parent them the same. They're, it's just our earthly and physical blessings just aren't the same. But in Christ, every single heavenly and spiritual blessing for every one of us who's accept Jesus, accepted Jesus and knows him, they're exactly the same. The spiritual and heavenly inheritance that you already possess from the the deposit of the Spirit guaranteeing what is to come is exactly the same as your believing neighbor in your pew. Okay? And then it's meant those, those are supposed to change us personally, spiritually, and psychologically as human beings. And then that flows out of us into our physical and earthly lives and does change things and brings about earthly and physical blessings, but differently for all of us. Does that make sense? Now, what it also means is this. The apostle, as a inmate, recognizes that if you turn to bless God, right, based on how he has blessed you, and focus on your earthly and physical blessings, you will pretty consistently fail to have a good attitude, to thank God, to be happy. You'll just—you can't—you just can't root yourself in that. There's just too many things that could go wrong— you just—it's just not going to work. He, he's saying you need to rue your blessing of God and his blessedness of you, not in every physical and earthly blessing, but in what you get in Christ. Those blessings. Because they can't be taken away. They can't be changed. They can't be minimized. They're yours. They're guaranteed. They're permanent. They belong to you. Right? And you need to start there. That everything you've ever done wrong is forgiven 
in Christ's death and resurrection. You are morally free from everything you should feel guilty about, every shame you should feel for all those things you did that were horrible. That you minimized that those, the unkind words, the gossip, the hatred, the theft. Make all the amends you can. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right what wrongs you can. But the fundamental guilt you could never deal with has been dealt with in Christ. In him, he has predestined you to be his son or daughter. And therefore, an heir to everything that belongs to him. It says he predestined you so that you would be his and live in holiness and righteousness. That is, that is not self-righteousness. That is, he means to create in you real goodness. We all want to believe we're good people. We all, in fake ways, convince ourselves we're good people. And then we wake up one day when we do another idiotic thing that we're not very good people. And if we're at all perceptive about our behavior, we realize constantly that we're not very good people. And yet he means to make you actually morally beautiful. And that is one of your inheritances. It's one of the blessings that he's promised. It's one of the things that Christ died for. It's one of the things that he is accomplishing in you through his spirit. He's given you his spirit. You'll never be alone at no point, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how many people reject you, no matter how disillusioned or disenfranchised you feel like you are. In Christ, you are never alone. The Holy Spirit is always present with you. Creating a new family in the church and its manifestation, real people in the local church. In all of these ways, they're all yours. And if you root your identity and therefore your attitude in those every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places purchased in Christ, the reliability of your capacity for peace and joy and happiness and clarity and freedom and courage is magnified. So whatever is going on earthly or physically speaking, you're ready. You know what to do. And sometimes what he's done in you will change what's happening physically and in earthly ways so that it will change for the better and it will bless other people and sometimes it will even bless you if you're patient and if you grow strong through these heavenly blessings that he's created for you in Christ. Does that make sense? Thank you. Three, God predestined us. So one of the first spiritual blessings that the apostle focuses on is your predestination in Christ. Okay? It's basically the blessing that you like least like. Um, people usually are immediately uncomfortable with the idea that if you've come to faith in Jesus, it is, you are, you were from the foundation of the world predestined. Right? It's, it says, for he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, <clears throat> when people—I've I've talked to lots of Christians who say, with great triumphalism in their voice, um, yeah, I don't believe in predestination. It's, that's awful. I don't believe in that stuff. And I, some of you have said it in my presence, and the problem with it is that, like, it's in numerous places in the Bible. Okay, in numerous places in the Bible, it says that those who believe are predestined by God to believe. Okay? Now, people usually have 
two immediate negative reactions to that idea. Because we're taught to think negatively about things, right? And we just are negative creatures. One is, well, if God predestined me, then nothing I do matters. Right? Like, you, you know, he's making the decisions, not me. So, like, what does it matter? And then secondly, well, then if I'm elect, but not everybody is saved, which the Bible, of course, teaches, then there are some people who are not elect. And if I'm saved because I'm elect, then why doesn't God just elect everybody so that everybody can be saved? He, he's that, therefore, and if that's not the case, then therefore God is mean. Right? Now, there's, there's two responses that I would want to—I want to give to this, given that I can't talk about it for like two hours, okay? Someday we'll do the book of Romans. We'll spend like 16 weeks in Romans 8 and 9, and you'll love it. It'll all be about predestination, and you can—you could go to another church for a while or something. Okay, and so um, the first is just be careful, okay? Because here's the thing. Usually when I tell—when when I talk about predestination with people, and I say, look, the Bible says that from the foundation of the world, you have been predestined in Christ. And, and they say immediately, well, then nothing I do matters. Okay, wait. You came up with that in four seconds, okay? What faculty do you think came up with that statement? Do you think it was your reason? Do you think it was like your rational mind working through all the possible implications, working the premises to their proper—no. It was your emotions. You just thought with your emotions is what happened. You're like, well, why believe that all meaning is rooted in your capacity to make a choice? Jean-Paul Sartre isn't God. Okay, the idea—that's the existentialist fallacy. Why can't your dignity as a human being be the meaningfulness of your life? Why can't your calling or your place—right? It's we Americans who believe we have the right to choose everything that happens in our lives, who decide only choice can imbue something with meaning. Most human beings for most of all of our lives on planet Earth have had virtually no choices about what happened to them. Arranged marriages— the job you did was whatever your daddy did or mommy did. Like, your, your place in the world was dictated by your birth. We're still fighting that in Europe. You're born into a class. You're dictated into a—it's all done for you. If it was true that you could only find meaning in choice and choices, most of humanity throughout most of history would not have been able to find any meaning in their lives. Right? Which gets me to the be careful, okay? The, part of the issue with this is—, the, is you need to really be careful about how you think through things because you can feel really confident about your reasoning. But if you get like one sub-premise wrong and you don't work it quite right, you'll be 100% sure and 100% wrong. And remember, when you're talking about predestination, you're talking about a subset of the providence of God, that is, his governing of all of the universe, in the mind, the unrevealed mind, that is, in the secret things of God, to the infinitely complex being. Okay? The likelihood that you have, like, bonked a premise in that is super high. All right? Let me give you a quick example of this. One of the reasons why science took off in Europe in the sort of middle 1500s was because it had been stalled for almost 2,000 years because the scientific text of Europe was Aristotle's organon. Right? Aristotle had written some great philosophy, and he'd written some great ethics and rhetorical works, and his work on science was just as good as the rest, except the, here's the problem. Deductive reasoning works way worse in science than in philosophy and ethics. Because in science, you really don't know the premises. The premises are observations about the natural world. And there's all kinds of—you just don't know what you don't know about science. And so Aristotle, like, made all these deductions, wrote all this definitive stuff about science, and people just followed it for nearly 2,000 years. And science got nowhere except in engineering. 
People are like, well, we, you know, we can't figure out biology, but I can build a better, you know, horse cart. And so almost all of the scientific advancements, advancements in Europe from 1,000, from about 800 to about 1,500 were basically structural. They were like breeding a bigger draft horse, creating a plow that would dig down further, and so on. Of course, when that happened, they got into food surplus, and then they could afford an academic class who started thinking about science, and then they got nowhere with Aristotle. And then Francis Bacon came along, and he wrote the New Organon. The first, like, 50 pages of that is basically like, yeah, this is all wrong. Like, we have all these assumptions that we brought to the science thing, and they're just all wrong. And until we, like, rework this and, like, think it over again, it's not going to work, right? Which is two things to learn from that. One is, the times when the church has been the most anti-science is when it took its science from outside the church. Right? Earth is the center of the solar system. That's not in the Bible. That's in the Seleucid philosopher Ptolemy. It's not in the Bible. We got it from outside the Bible, and then we made it Christianity. We made Aristotle the fundamental basis of Christian science for a thousand years. What? That's not in the Bible. We took secular science, we made it Christian science, and then we were anti-science. Right? I could give you like two dozen examples of this. It's not Christianity that's against science. It's when we get like old science, and then we make it canonized, and then we got problems, okay? But the main thing for this sermon, to learn from that, is that, man, you get one thing wrong, and then you stick with it, and you can believe something completely wrong and have no idea why you got it wrong, and you need to be careful with predestination. Because you'll come to these objections, they'll really be emotional, you'll think they're rational, you'll be like, I don't like this predestination thing, and God must be mean, and you'll actually miss the blessing of election. You'll miss the blessing of predestination. All right, the second is Christ, that God elected us in Christ. He does not expand on that. And so, because I'm a little behind, I'm going to not either. So, that this text actually tells us what we're supposed to know. One, that God did elect and predestine us if we've come to Christ, and that that should be seen as a blessing. Two, he tells us his purpose— so that we could be holy and blameless in his sight. That's why he predestined us. And so that he would be glorified by that. Third, he tells us his means. He did it in Christ and through Christ. And fourth, he tells us his motivation. He wanted to do it, and he chose it specifically, right? Which is helpful, because listen, if you had to give up the lifeblood of one of your children to rescue someone, you'd probably be pretty angry about it, Right? But the Son, Christ, chose to die for us. The Father sent him to die for us, and it was his pleasure and will to do it. He chose it. He was not manipulated into it. You didn't make him feel bad. Nobody twisted his arm. He wanted to redeem his human creatures. He wanted to redeem those he chose. He sent his Son, and his Son shared his will and went as willingly as he was sent. He was not forced into it. It was not cosmic child abuse. Jesus chose to go just as the Father sent him to go. Like an adult son who knew his duty and cared about his father's work. And he did it out of a choice. It was his will. And he also did it out of his pleasure. Remember it says in, Roman, in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus embraced the, the cross and scorned its shame because of the joy that was before him. 
God elected you if you've believed, and God's invitation to you into his election, from your perspective, is out of pleasure and will and love. Right? And it's also the reason why you can believe that the gospel has the power to save. Right? Because G.A. Packer wrote a book years ago called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and he said, listen, some people don't like the idea of predestination because they're like, I'm going to go out and share the gospel with people, and I don't know who's elected and who's not, and like, I might be wasting my time, and maybe my loved one that I've been praying for, maybe they're just not elect. It's the wrong way to look at it. Packer goes, listen, yes, we are going out to find the elect. That's true, but listen, sin is such that if election wasn't true, you wouldn't lead anybody to Jesus. We are bound in heart and soul in our slavish love for sin and its destruction of us. We love our death in it. And no one would turn from it if God didn't give them repentance. And he gives those repentance that he has chosen, and you will find them, and they will turn, and they will come. And so you can believe, no matter how much you think the culture is against the gospel. So what? Those God has elected, he will find, and he will choose, and he will convict, and he will lead, and he will set up the providences of their life, and he will bring them to himself, and you can be part of it, if you will. And then as you read the rest of Scripture, the purpose of predestination isn't so that you and I can be proud of it. It's actually supposed to humble you, right? One, it's for the glory of God, that whatever you think you did in salvation, before you ever did any of that, he elected you. You're like, well, then I, I believe. Yeah, well, way before you believed, he predestined you. So, but you're like, but Nick, you, we talk at church, yes, salvation is by grace, but we talk all the time about how we're not saved by works, but we're transformed through like a, a striving, like a, a working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. Like, like we do a lot to like experience the transformation of salvation. Yes, you do. That's totally true. And you don't get to brag about it, and you're not better than anybody. Because you are here because he chose you, right? And so it eliminates all human boasting. You just, you'd be like, well, you want to make people feel really special? Well, yeah, special like the color of their eyes or the place of their birth. Like, you can be like glad you're Italian or something, but like you didn't choose that. And it would be silly to think that you were somehow better than anybody because you were a particular race or nationality or had a certain color hair or a certain eye color or your eyelashes flicked up with a certain kind of mascara on it. That was for you ladies. It's a feminine-focused illustration. Um, the point is, is that election actually takes away pride. It doesn't give pride. Does that make sense? And that's his purpose. That when we looked at salvation, we understand his election we would be glad for it, and we would feel humbled by it. And we would be humbled to the work of going and finding the rest of them. The fourth thing is, is that God saves graciously. Verses 5 and 6 says, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely, the word is literally graciously, given us in the one he loves. Now, Grace is one of those words that says everything about Christian faith and that almost none of us understand, and so it does almost nothing for us emotionally. Okay? Um, it just doesn't have any freight. Have you, have you heard the joke about the new prisoner, the old prisoner telling jokes in the courtyard thing? 
Um, I'm going to tell it because I can't see what you're doing. Okay, so there's this, there's, there, there's this prison, and there's this old guy, and he gets, like, a new guy in his cell. And there's this kind of courtyard where you can, like, you can, like, yell out the window, and other, other cells can hear you. And he's like, this is the time of day where we tell jokes. And the guy's like, well, that sounds like a good way to pass the time. He's like, yeah, except we have, like, 250 jokes. Everybody knows them by heart. And so we just yell out the numbers. And the kid's like, that's crazy. And he's like, no, 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 watch. He goes, 47, right? And, you, like, you hear kind of chuckling and some belly laughing and, you know, and then, and then the, 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 the kid's like, okay, you're, like, putting me on, right? This is a practical— no, 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 watch, watch. 162, right? And different people laugh. Other people are chuckling. It's kind of funny. Even some of the guards are laughing, you know? And then somebody else goes like, 79! And the old guy's like, oh, 79. <laughs> oh, gosh. He goes, hey, he's like, you try it, right? So the young guy's like, really? He's like, but I don't know the jokes. He's like, you just yell the number. It's fine. He's like, okay. So he gets up there and he goes, he goes, 203! It's crickets. And the guy's like, try it. Try it. It's fine. Try, try it. He goes, 203! It's just crickets, right? And so the the young guy, like, turns the old guy, like, what's, what's wrong with this? And he just looks at him and goes, man, some people just can't tell a joke. <laughs> right? Why do I tell you that joke? Because, right, like, that, some of our Christian language becomes like that, right? We say grace, and our young people hear 124. And we laugh. And they have no idea what we're talking about. It doesn't do a thing for them. And most of our theological word, theological words become those numbers. To uninitiated people, to young people, to seekers, or to people who are just kind of in a dry spell, and the words just don't evoke well enough. And they, they require like new, fresh explanation. Otherwise, they won't mean anything to us. Grace is one of them. Justification, sanctification, mercy of God, the glory of God. Like people say the glory of God all the time, or even being saved. What does being saved even mean? We never say what we're saved from. Hardly, right? And so all these things become these numbers, and we're like 124, 326, 521. They're like, we wonder why churches don't grow, right? Grace, this concept of grace is one of the foundational concepts of the whole book of Ephesians, of the whole Bible. In fact, C.S. Lewis came into an argument in Oxford one time where they were arguing, what was the real difference between the religions of the world? And they turn to Luther and like, what do you think the real difference between Christianity and all the other religions in the world are? Thinking he would say, well, Jesus, the incarnate son. And he, he didn't. He said, well, grace. Christian faith is the only religion which promises salvation. You have the word of promise, and it's all of grace. It's all gift. There's nothing else. Everything, all the works is all just response to that, right? Grace is the fountainhead of everything in the gospel, right? You could, you could, um, Define it something like this. Grace is everything God gives us that we do not have a claim to, which is basically everything. And that's one of the reasons why people will say the grace of God in all kinds of weird contexts. Because you can be referring to almost anything. Because basically everything God does is gracious. Everything is his free generosity. Everything is gift. The only thing that isn't—you could argue isn't gift that we can ask for from God— it's basically damnation, okay? Because God is good, and he's not going to change that about himself. He likes that he's good, which means he acts justly. He's not going to change that. And so you can demand from God the good response that his justice would require. You could say, God, give me justice. That's something you could ask for. The problem is, is that if you get justice from God, that's not going to go well. 
You don't want that. The one thing you can demand from God is the one thing you do not want from God, which is justice. What you want is the justice you deserve to be put on Christ. And the free gift of all good things that God pours on his son to be imputed and given to you through faith, which is the offer. Everything is grace. The fact that you exist, your creation, every good day, everything you like about yourself, every gift that you have, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of salvation, the fact that you will survive death, the new family of the church, the providence of the written scriptures. If you have a mother or a father in your life, any good that they do to you, any good anyone does to you, relative wealth, relative health, the capacity to overcome, personal perseverance, spiritual transformation, godliness, the bearing of the image of God, everything, 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 everything. Every spiritual blessing, every earthly blessing, every natural blessing, every supernatural blessing, every single thing is gift. Sheer grace, complete generosity, just given out of pleasure to all who would accept it. Right? And he says to us, what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, I should make you happy. Right? He, that's what he's doing, right? He says, he writes to the holy, the saints, those who believe and who are faithful. He says, listen, let's praise God. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our good king. He's our Lord, Jesus. You can't get a better king than Jesus. We have the best and perfect king. Yes, he's in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God right now. But he's our king, right? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let me specify. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. He's always been in charge. He's always been in control. He's always been doing it. He did it so that we'd be, we would be holy and blameless in his sight. Not self-righteous in his sight but like real, the real beauty of true goodness to be formed in us through him and forgiveness of all that we need to be forgiven of. The shame that we deserve and should be put on us, put away eternally because if God is for us, who can stand against us? And what would the one who gave his son for us not give us that we need additionally now? He predestined us so that we would be adopted as his sons and daughters, heirs of every good thing that exists in his presence. Through Jesus Christ, not through your effort, not through some accomplishment of yours, but through just Jesus Christ. He did it in accordance with his pleasure and will. It was his choice. He wanted to do it. He's not angry at you. The, the expression of God's faith, face expressed out from you from the ether is not a frown. Chesterton said at the end of Orthodoxy, I think the one thing that God has hidden from us the most up until this point is his mirth, his laughter, his happiness. God is as happy as he is severe. And he's done it out of his glorious grace. The freedom of his generosity is so renowned, so complete, so abundant, so absolute, that it is full of glory. Majesty is the only way it can be described. You and I have not begun to see its vastness. And that glorious thing is his grace, his generosity in everything. 
and he has freely given it to us. You're never going to earn it. You're never going to add to it. You never have to. You never need to. And then for three more chapters, he's going to go on about this. It'll take us a couple months to get through it. All of it freely given. And its result is supposed to be simply this. Know in your heart and in your soul, on some level, that in Christ, you have been unspeakably blessed by God if you've received it. Yes, all, those blessings at this point in salvation history are in the heavenly places. Yes, they are spiritual blessings. But don't buy into the materialist fallacy that that makes them less real. They're not less real. They're more real. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus said, will never pass away. Heaven and earth are material. His words are immaterial. But his words will last longer and are more real and are more sure. And it is those words that will change your physical and earthly reality more than anything else possibly could because they'll change you. And the first response to this, whether you feel like you're sitting in a jail cell or not, is based on your understanding of that blessing, let it weigh upon you enough to do something for you, and then you bless back. Praise him, adore him, love him, be glad, be happy in God. Know that these things are for you, and know that you can respond back for all that's been given to you, and that will change you. Just in and of itself, treating God like he should be treated will change you. God, as we, um, as we endeavor to enter into this book, we know that especially the first three chapters are really thick with theology. But God, we pray that our contemplation of these spiritual and heavenly blessings in Christ would quickly dawn upon us to see how fundamentally powerfully they change our earthly and physical experiences. Every relationship, every responsibility, every role that we have in our lives, every, every bit of suffering that clings to us, every thing in the narration of our life that we didn't think would go this way, every chain we think we bear. We pray that you'd help us to see. I pray that we'd come out richly in small group discussions. As people discuss how these things should apply to our lives, that you'd fill their creative, their creative minds richly with application. And each person, as we talk and as we eat lunch together and as we ruminate on your truth, and God, we pray that we start this journey through this book with a heart that is blessed in you and that freely blesses you. And I pray that even in this, these short moments, we would feel the payoff of joy that thankfulness brings, the happiness that we can choose instead of the default of earthly miseries. Help us to do it in Jesus' name.